You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. On today's episode of Water Flying, we are talking to Jim Hartwell from British Columbia, Canada. Jim played an integral part in developing a seaplane safety program originally tailored to the forest industry. Yeah, the program has been uh, around expanded upon uh, to address all aspects related to float plane flying. And Jim is a guy with a lot of experience. He has over 20,000 hours of flying experience and is one of the directors of the Air Carriers Safety Working Group, which oversees this safety program uh, that Jim will be talking about with us today. Jim, uh, it's nice to meet you, and thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's a nice time to give you a call here. I'm just about ready to head over to my dad's to put up his Christmas lights and uh, getting ready for the Christmas season. Well, there you go, and you probably have some white stuff around too, which we don't. <laughs> no, we don't. It's just cold and damp today. It was cold here today, too, Jim, here in Florida. It was 65. Yeah, I know. That must be tough. I hope, <laughs> I hope you got your sweater on, Abby. I have a couple sweaters on. I'm not handling the cold very well. I wasn't made for this. <laughs> so, Jim, thank you so oh, much boy. for joining us. Tell us a little bit about this seaplane safety program called the North Star Safety Practices and how it came to be. Well, let me start. Uh, by going back to October 2011, uh, because of a spike we had in accidents out here on the west coast of BC, uh, they put together, we put together the industry, that is pilots and operators, uh, a death review uh, panel that reported or drafted a blue um, uh, and submitted to the chief coroner here in British Columbia a report on. Um, what could be done to improve safety and diminish uh, the potential for accidents? And uh, the result of that was uh, what we're talking about today, which is uh, North Star practices. Now, during the same time, uh, the British Columbia Forest Safety Council approached the uh, Floatplane Operators Association, which I was a member of, uh, for help with addressing some of these recommendations by creating a set of standards and protocols. Um, I was at the time the administrator uh, for this association and volunteered my time with starting on the safety program. So it's really a program specific to air carrier standards and best practices that could be used when flying forestry workers to and from work. However, considering the fact that it's a living document and a program. It was agreed that an operator, any operator in any part of the world should be able to adapt this program to suit their needs while still uh, helping to diminish those potential accidents. Wow, that's great. So, you know, that's really one of the major roles of the Seaplane Pilots Association is working to help our community be safer and to keep the pilots safer and, and to do everything we can. And, and to that end, uh, we've made safety videos. We've got a manufacturer safety group right now that is working to address 
uh, safety issues for floatplane pilots and seaplane pilots. And I, on a normal year, this not being a normal year with COVID, do about 50 safety seminars and workshops from Alaska all the way down to Florida. So um, can you give us uh, some significant parts of the program that are, are really aimed at improving the seaplane safety for the pilots and the operators? Yeah, by all means. Uh, right now, uh, because it's a living document, and I say that because uh, we may be adding more things to it, but uh, we have 27 practices listed in there right at the moment. This wow. is a voluntary program, by the way. Um, one of the key ones that we've discovered out here on the West Coast is because of weather, um, and it's number 26 in my document. The operator is expected to have training that includes a component on the avoidance of and recovery from sudden encounters with conditions that are below visual meteorological conditions, VMC minima. In particular, the training on how to avoid or recover from the loss of visual reference encountered in low-level flight over glassy water. Wow. The recovery from this hazardous situation will include executing a 180-degree turn using instruments in order to avoid loss of altitude while recapturing a path back to better conditions. This is something they don't teach in flying school and we thought was essential in our program. Uh, other topics we teach or expect the operator to use is mountain flying training, um, a more uh, robust pre-takeoff briefings, uh, PFDs are expected to be worn, and um, Paul, no, I, I have to interrupt you there. You get points. Can you repeat what you just said? Because <laughs> that's one of my passion topics. Well, repeat about what I just said. The, about the PFDs. The PFDs. Wearing the PFDs. PFDs are something that we expect the op- the operator who is signed on to this voluntary program to use uh, whenever carrying passengers. Um, that is something that to me, it just makes sense. And these are and, personal um, flotation devices. If there's a seaplane pilot out there that doesn't know what PFD stands for, then, again, I think you need to give the Seaplane Pilots Association a call or give you a call so you can learn more about this. But I just want to establish when we talk about PFDs, it's the acronym for uh, personal flotation devices. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, to me, it makes sense, and I would think most pilots that I've spoken to it does as well. Uh, trying to extricate yourself out of a compromised aircraft with a life jacket that's in a pack or a satchel or a pouch hidden under your seat or over your heads, the mechanics of getting that thing on and inflated while outside of the aircraft, you don't want to inflate it while you're inside because it makes it hard to get out, uh, is very difficult. Common sense dictates that you wear a PFD while entering or boarding the aircraft. That's something that we expect uh, North Star Practices uh, operator to, to use and implement. Absolutely. So I know, Jim, that you can't, you're not here with us. You're up in BC, but Steve just has a big smile on his face. (laughs) I think, I think you are number one in Steve's book right now, wearing the PFDs, having those on yourself when you are flying, when your passengers are in an airplane, you're wearing those personal flotation devices. Yes. Love it. I think it's essential because 
Um, there's too many people that have been in a compromised situation that have not had the ability or the chance to get out and uh, survive the, an impact because they've. the first thing people do is try to get out. They don't go for the life jacket. Yeah, you're going to try so to save you yourself. On, yeah. Right. It's just uh, the way we, we operate, uh, you know. But if you've got something on you, donned, uh, you can get out, and then you pull the cord or the inflator, and, and it inflates, and uh, hopefully you, you have a better chance of survivability. Well, there's a lot but of... there's a, in the aircraft, try to don a, a life jacket that's either between your legs or over your head, um, you're, you're losing valuable time. Yeah, you need to get out. And, and here's what people don't, I think, pay attention to enough or think about enough that I spend a lot of time. Of course, you know, a large part of my job is engineering ways to help survival. And I'm huge on survival. I came from special operations. I worked AC-130 gunships in, in the Air Force. Oh. And, uh, you know, I think about this stuff all the time. So, you know, the, the thing is, is there's a good chance in an impact that you have an injury. Uh, so... Even if you have a PFD that you're going to try to don, yeah, that's not going to happen. Again, and it's all about getting out of the airplane. And what people have to realize that there's a huge chance you're going to be upside down with your nose filling up with water. And, you know, it's going to be a very uncomfortable, disorienting, difficult situation. And you need to give yourself every bit of leverage you can to survive. The other thing is, is when you... Yeah, and the other thing is, is when you get out, if you have a broken arm, if you have a broken leg, if you're in thermal shock because of the temperature of the water, how long are you going to be, how long can you tread water? (laughs) Well, in cold water, I mean, you know, your your hypothermia kicks in. uh, You know, you need every tool of the toolbox to your advantage. And I believe that donning a PFD before, during, and when you get off the plane, is a is a is just one of those things. It just makes common sense. Absolutely. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the water's a little cold up there, isn't it? Oh yeah, it can be uh, quite cold. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've fallen in a few times. I've I've dived in a few times after a pair of sunglasses or a cell phone, and uh, well, let me tell you, it's pretty invigorating. Oh gosh, you've done that on purpose. For sunglasses? Oh, just buy some new sunglasses. That's, oh, I'm not getting in that water for that. So. Okay. So, so, you know, I think that uh, you right now are our guest of the month because of your uh, your position on PFDs. Because, again, it is one of my most passionate subjects. Uh, I have a closet full of different ones. I wear a Switlick full molly. Uh, with a seatbelt cutter and my heed bottle. And literally at the Seaplane Pilots Association, we became a distributor both for the Switlek PFDs and uh, the heed bottles, which are a a breathing device that actually gives you about 36 to 40 breaths of air. So you can, again, if you can breathe while you're hanging upside down underwater with your nose filling up with water, uh, if you can breathe, you can take time to slow down. There's less panic, and you can be more methodical about ensuring a successful egress out of the airplane. So um, big, big, big passion subject, which is why we were so excited to have you on the show today. So um, does your pro, you know, in the U.S., we're really looking at a lot of, issues where we're having pilots actually do gear down water landings 
And again, those either usually have a total loss of aircraft, serious injuries, or death of the occupants. Uh, does your program address uh, gear down water landings or amphibious aircraft operations? No, it doesn't, but I'm going to put it in there because that's a darn good idea. Uh, being a living document, we can add as many things as we feel um, are important to enhancing safety. Uh, well, may I just interject for a second, Steve? Absolutely. Uh, talking about people in the water, uh, we highly recommend in this program, and we expect it, that the pilots take an egress course. Good. I've done that it. Any pilot. I've done it many times. A lot of, yeah, and their clients. Uh, we we fly a lot of regulars, uh, loggers and such, uh, that they take an egress course and that they take a recurrent course every few years. And it's all specified in the document. And, um, you know, enhancing the survivability rate, um, it's been highly recommended that egress be uh, one of these uh, recommendations. So I have that in there as well. Good, good. And uh, how much does that uh, breathing device that you say, uh, how much does that weigh? I mean, how can that, you know, it's about a pound and a half, that. about a pound and a half. And uh, the Swidlig vest have a Molly system on it. And uh, no. uh, he has a Molly attachment uh, holster. So it just, uh, it can go either on your right side or your left side. If I'm flying my Super Cub, okay. uh, I put it on the right side because that's the door side. So it has less, you know, interference. If I'm flying a, a doored airplane like a Beaver, I put the heat bottle on the left side because that's the first side out and has the least amount of interference. Yeah, no, the reason I ask, I just, you know, I'm always open to new ideas and, and uh, equipment, uh, something to look at and maybe add to the program as well. Well, we will have that discussion, um, and maybe that'll be a, another episode. And, you know, I'm really glad to hear that you guys are teaching and recommending the uh, egress training as well. We w have a partner with Southern Seaplanes down in New Orleans, or up in New Orleans okay. for us. And uh, yep. they have a, a beautiful uh, dunk tank facility that was built and, and was primarily used by the oil industry. And uh, they have a, a multi-million dollar dunker facility and it's uh, salt water and, and everything else. But you literally go there and you spend a full day in the dunk tank and they have breakout windows and doors that you have to unlatch and, and everything else. Oh. And uh, so last year for our, our member trip, every year we've started doing a member adventure and we literally took uh, the group to Southern Seaplanes. And as part of the, uh, you know, what's supposed to be in a fun trip uh, we gave them a one-day introduction into the safety survival program there at the dunk tank. Oh, that sounds like a really good deal. The, the, uh, so I'm sure you have a lot of uh, egress uh, schools in that area. Uh, I would highly recommend that anybody that flies on floats take it. Yeah, same here. And, you know, I think... From my experience now, I go through it every year, and I actually encourage Lyle, the owner, to go through if I go through. But from my experience, you know, it's such a disorienting, uncomfortable uh, situation that I actually think there's a lot of sensibility to going through the program either on a yearly or a bi-yearly basis because to me, the more exposure you have over time, the more at home you're going to be in this very uncomfortable, unnatural environment, and it's going to improve your chances of survival. Absolutely. Yeah, they say it's uh, very disorienting uh, when you take the course, 
uh, but they teach you a, a sort of a, it's like a tactile uh, uh, set of procedures. So it's all done by feel. You, you orient yourself with the door and the exit points. And basically through repetition, you, you learn how to extricate yourself from the airplane and get out of that thing. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So I took egress training when I worked in the caravans up in New York, and that is, it is not comforting necessarily, but certainly it is nice to know that if something were, heaven forbid, to happen, I could get out of that airplane and possibly save others. So that's a great feeling. I love it. So this program has been in effect for some time now. You said 2011. And is there data? Oh, that's what it started. Right. Sorry, Abby. It did it's not been in effect. We're waiting for COVID to go away because the operators are all in survival mode right now. But I have oh. a few lined up using it in the new year. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. So how are you distributing this information to the operators? Like, how are you getting this program out there? Well, the best way I found is just through, um, I have a, a website and I put it up on the site. And then I've gone through my old list of every operator I know that used to be members of the float plane operators association. And it's just phoning and hounding them and joining up, uh, as a member of the Northern air transport association. Um, they're based out of Yellowknife, uh, way up in the high Arctic where it's really cold, Abby. And- <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I'll get another sweater. Uh, we'll have to have her come up there to go to the golf tournament. Um, I'm not getting a lot of, uh, feedback or support from the government per se, except I must add the one uh, institution that was involved with this at the very beginning is the British Columbia Forest Safety Council. And they're the ones that, like I mentioned at the very beginning, um, when we were talking, uh, you, Steve, and I, that approached the float plane operators and says, let's get this thing going gym go out and develop a safety program and they've been uh, involved with this right from the get-go but on the federally level no not much support but i'm getting a lot of support from the provincial uh uh people here uh, you know like uh i guess it'd be like a state level where you're at yeah and and so we you know pilots can not always be the easiest group to kind of encourage to change their burned in habits and practices um, what's the feedback that you've had from the pilots and the operators that are you're you're talking to well the ones you know I find it interesting the demographic that's uh, buying into this the most are the younger people the young uh, more progressive thinking the old the old school seems interested but they want the other guy to make the first move so it's very conservative i think that's a common denominator throughout the industry you know they're stubborn they don't want to see more paperwork yeah Um, and it's not really more paperwork you take this document and you put it in your what we call sms safety management system I don't know if your operators down there have, I'm sure they have a similar system. Or yeah, your yeah. safety program, you take this, put it in there, it's an easy fit. I've, I've developed an auditing uh, uh, tool in this. Um, a, uh, all of the necessary documents that, are, that you require are included with this thing. You just take it, you put it in your program, and you follow the practices in there. And then you self-audit yourself as an operator the first two years and on the third year 
you bring in a third-party auditor. Wow, uh, that's that good. Make yeah. sure that you're performing um, on an equal footing with your peers. Yeah, but I think and that's one of the. Satellite. I think that's Sorry, one of ahead. the. Yeah, I think that's one of the things, though, that we as a community, quite honestly, uh, you know, I, I call a card for a card, and I really don't hold anything back. And some people appreciate that, and some people don't. And quite honestly, you know, Abby, Abby doesn't like it. I say I'm the Papa Bear of our community, and <laughs> I'm, I, I really want to take care of everyone, and I want to make sure everyone comes home at the end of the day, as well as their passengers and their loved ones. And and the community is apt to being very resistant to change to their burned in habits. And they don't, they're also, uh, uh, you know, they're very much in their own mindsets. You know, they don't like people telling them they're strong minded and they don't want someone else coming in and saying, look, I know you're doing it this way, but you shouldn't be doing it. You should be doing it my way. And, and to our discredits as pilots, uh, I think that that's, one of the things I'd like to ch- change or see changed in our community because it's really up to us to mitigate risk at every possible avenue. And, and we have to take a, a more open-minded approach to mitigating risk. Yeah, I think it was uh, – now, don't, don't hold me to this, but I, I believe – let me put it that way. Uh, Chuck Yeager said – the biggest cause of accidents and deaths in aviation is arrogance. Yeah, ego. I mean, I think one of our biggest issues, and it takes a strong ego to fly airplanes and to deal with challenging yeah, situations. Sure but at the same time... Now, when I hired guys... Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm go ahead. Go for it. No, go for it. Well, when I ever hired guys, we were looking for guys that were that had a lot of self-confidence. And, and ladies... Abby, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Looking for someone that's going absolutely. to like dip Actually, their my, toe my in the water. Was a lady, and she was darn good. Uh, we're looking for guys with self confidence, but not so much that it's going to get them in trouble. No you foolishness. Know, you want that, self, but you don't want them timid. But you don't want them overconfident either. And it's a real balance in personality. Definitely. I mean, I've worked with, I've trained people that it's, it's walking that line between stroking the ego and making sure that, you know, they know that they are able to do this. This is a new type of flying. If they're coming from land flying and they're trying to get their float plane rating, they have to have a little bit of, is it gumption? Is that the right word? A little bit of go get it itis and just, they're willing to try anything and they're willing to make some mistakes. You can't get meek when you're in that airplane. You really have to stay in control of the thing. But yeah, definitely yeah. a fine line. I mean, it's real easy to step over, and now you're yeah, exhibiting those negative pilot uh, attitudes. Nature yeah. makes you humble. Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, we are under the far aim that is sort of the aviation bible to a certain degree, um, and isn't that the whole point of having the government regulations? They're set. They keep us safe. So, what is the ad- advantage of implementing this program? Versus just abiding to the federal aviation regulations, the FAR. Well, you're going to diminish, like I've said before, diminish the potential of having an accident by following these practices. Because we know that the the, the federales, and you know, they're, I'm, I'm sure they're trying their best, but um, limits to weather-related uh, conditions are really a 
with with the federal regulations, it's like it's like a building code for a house. You can build it to code, or you can overbuild it. But um, if you really want to better your chances of survival, um, you try to do things that are going to make it uh, more in your favor. You know, uh, don't fly in high winds or with a lot of mechanical turbulence or downdrafts. Uh, put off the flight until a later time or the next day. Uh, cancel flights. Um, you know, you don't have to get the trip done just to prove that, you know, um, you're the, you know, God's gift of aviation. Um, really, at the end of the day, you just want everybody to get home safe uh, to their loved ones. And by following these practices, you know, don't fly in high winds. Watch your visibilities according to how we've laid it out. Um, wear a PFD. Um, do a satellite tracking with your company uh, so that someone is always able to monitor your altitudes and your direction of flight and where you're at. And if you're trouble, in, in trouble, we can probably expedite somebody uh, to you more quickly than the government ever could and this sort of thing. Um, these are all things that can help enhance safety. And like uh, Steve says, anything that can improve safety as a, as a community, uh, you know, we should take uh, responsibility for it and do something proactive about. So yeah. your program is going, it's above and beyond. That's really the idea that, you know, you have these, these set standards that the government puts out, um, regardless of, you know, United States, Canada, elsewhere, they have the set standards. But you have the responsibility as a pilot, as an operator, to say there are some weak spots here. I mean, I was talking about it with a student today, the idea that we yeah. can take off 9100. Yeah. I mean, you can, but is it a great idea? There's nothing specifically well, saying you can't land a seaplane at night. Obviously, if it's an amphib, it's a little different. But you have to make the decision as the operator, as the owner and the pilot, to say, I don't think that's a great idea. Not everything needs to be regulated. It's yeah. not practical. I don't think we want to live in an environment where it's all regulated. But there's a difference between adopting the best practices and having regulation being an overburden. I like that. I like that. Well, so, you know, don't, not necessarily needing someone to hold your hand, but taking the initiative to say, I I know that there are, there are areas to improve. And this practice, the North Star it. practices, it's going above and beyond. And it's just taking that extra step to keep yourself and your passengers and people that you care about and you want to see them get to their destination safely. Yeah, well, we don't think about IMC conditions, like I said, very much in the lower 48 probably, but I did a lot of flying in an airplane and one of my, I have a, a tail dragger, Cessna 120, and I was flying in Northern California, uh, way north. And, you know, we were one of the foggiest places in the world. Matter of fact, the, our airport, ACV, is known as being the f absolute foggiest airport in the world. And I didn't, I didn't have an artificial horizon. I still don't have an artificial horizon in that airplane. I still have it today. And, you know, IMC was a big deal because we would have coastal fog come in. And my nearest option was 100 miles over 6,500-foot mountains in a Cessna 120, right. you know, with 85 horsepower. So, you know, and then if it, if I had sunset, you know, get in, now I had no light over, you know, completely desolate mountains with no ambient light coming off of the surface. 
and 60, you know, I had everything going against me. So it's, it's something I can relate to a lot. And, and unfortunately I've had friends up in Alaska that have had, you know, um, controlled flight into terrain, uh, in IMC and, and it's resulted in the death of themselves and their passengers. And so, um, I, I'm really tuned into this. So I think your program right now, is it geared mostly towards the commercial pilots and, and do you see the private seaplane owner operator using this as well, or you see distributing it to the private? No, I, it's, it's tailored specifically to the, the operators that are flying commercially higher, you know, to start with, that's the starting point of this. But, uh, there are elements in it that any pilot can use. Um, and that being said, there's no reason why I can't tailor a, a whole uh, new program just specific to the private pilot. Yeah, well, maybe that's uh, something for you and I to partner on. Yeah, there should be something uh, more robust than what the regulators are giving us to use. You know, regardless, the paperwork never made anything safer. But, yeah. Uh, it's at the end of the day, it's the pilots' um, due diligence, um, you know, in flying that makes the big difference. I really like that. So, you know, we talked to Harry Shannon a little while back on this podcast about pilots, owners taking responsibility for corrosion issues and maintenance issues that they may have on their airplane. So it's really, it's, I, I just like that more and more. The, the more guests we talk to, people like you, Jim, who say, Pilots, you you got to step it up a notch. And I think this program is just a great way to pilot in command. Is pilot in command take control of what that means? So, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, do you have any final thoughts on the program that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I'd like to see uh, I'd like to see more people get involved with this, and I'm always open to input. Like the idea of uh, adding that. Uh, practice of uh, the gear down procedures for amphibs. Um, I'll probably start wrapping up something tonight on that, putting it <laughs> in the document. Fantastic. Like, no, I really think that's great. Yeah, I mean, need to put more. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, you're fine. Go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah, if, folks, if you want to enter any of your beautiful photographs of aircraft or areas that you fly in, I also have a photo contest up there on the website. Yeah, I saw some of those. Yeah, they're pretty nice, eh? Yeah, they are pretty cool. So I just, you know, Jim, I I can tell that this is not going to be the, it may be the first time that you're on the Water Flying Podcast. I surely doubt it's going to be the last time. And I think I have a new friend and partner in our goal of increasing our pilot safety. So uh, I really, I really have enjoyed this conversation deeply. And I want to thank you for joining us. Um, If you want to learn more about North Star practices, I encourage you to go to Jim's website at www.northstarpractices.org. Jim, it's been incredibly insightful. Thank you so much. And I look forward to having you back shortly. Thanks, Steve, and thanks, Abby. It was really great talking to you. I enjoyed it immensely. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive water flying, 
the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org. Join our community and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.